Welcome to the Coffee, Critiques, and Cracked Pottery podcast. This podcast is a bi-weekly exploration of topics and tangents running from food to literature and politics to pop culture. I am your host, Ray, a card-carrying citizen of flyover country, where things are never quite as simple as you imagine. Good morning and welcome to Coffee Critiques and Cracked Pottery. So today and during this coffee portion of the show, I guess I just will talk a little bit about what's been going on here. There's been a lot. Um, we recently celebrated Fire in the Shire and that was pretty nuts. I got to work um, that day at one of the local retailers and got to dress in character and interact with a whole bunch of cute little kids who came in in their Ren Faire costumes. It was really pretty terrific. Otherwise, things here have been pretty decent. The river is still high, but seems to be going down some. And it's been on and off cool, like cooler weather than normal. I'm used to for the last several years. By the time we got to about the second week of June, we were all melting. But it's been kind of cool and a little wet, but not like super rainy. We have a couple, had a couple storms, but nothing really major. So there's been good weather for getting out and doing various things in the community. Lots of uh, fun stuff going on north of us on the river and south of us on the river. Joe has been playing quite a bit. Him and Mr. Pete Burkhart. Last time I saw them was during Fire in the Shire, actually. They were playing in one of the local watering holes, and that was fun. I went there. After getting done with my shift at the leather shop, I stopped in there. Other than that, I've been fairly busy. I started a new podcast, which some of you may know about. It is called Handmaids and Harlots, and I'm doing it with a friend of mine who I've been gaming with for a couple years. She is a really smart cookie. She's a disabled U.S. vet, and she has a big eye for historical stuff and reading, and she watches good stuff and is a good thinker. So she and I decided we would do a podcast about The Handmaid's Tale, the TV show that's airing on Hulu right now, and there are new episodes up, new season. And then we will be discussing Harlots, also on Hulu, which is a fantastic show and based in some very studious work by Haley Rubinold. Uh, she's an English historian. So great shows and interesting messages, both of them about women and women's lives and women's work. One, of course, in a futuristic, quote unquote, futuristic dystopia and the other one in the Wayback Machine going to a period of Victorian England. One is about an extremely repressive society where women are not allowed to be much more than walking talking incubators and the other though it does take place in the Victorian area and in fact it also struggles with those sorts of sexist perceptions of women particularly the dichotomy between the whore Madonna thing. It details women who at least can make their own money, which they're not really allowed to do in Gilead. So there's something for you to think about as terrible as the economic situation was in Victorian England for women of low class. And I don't mean unclassy women. I mean women of lower class status. What that life was like for them. They at least had the ability to make their own money. 
and spend it, which is a big and important theme in terms of liberty within Harlot. So it's a good show. And they're interesting to look at together, like as commentaries about women's condition in the world. So um, her and I have been working on that and doing some reading and doing some podcasting, just talking about the episodes, really. We'll probably get more into the actual historical, political, and stuff for both shows once we've completed the series that we can actually go through and talk about some of, really talk about some of the interesting ways in which these stories intersect. So that's something, if you're interested at all, um, I would suggest giving it a check. I will post a link in the show notes for this episode of Coffee Critiques and Crack Pottery. Um, Living on Poverty is fun. So I've been... (laughs) Been doing some interesting things in terms of cooking because, you know, you have to. You get creative when you don't have a lot. So that's been fun. And otherwise, uh, life's been fairly restive. On and off, been struggling with the weird weather with my fibromyalgia, but it's not terrible. It's not terrible. It's just not great. But then no day actually is ever really great. In any case, on Facebook, I mentioned that this episode was going to be about two new shows on Netflix that relate to my culinary loves. However, I think today, for today, when we get to uh, critiques, I'm going to stick pretty close to just one. I think that both shows are good enough that they deserve their own episodes, and I honestly am, in the case of the second show, which I'm not doing this week, but the next one, it really kind of needs, I think, a whole treatment all by itself without waffling back and forth between these two shows. Because their focus, and I think, well, not their full intent, but their focus is slightly different. They're different formatted shows and provide something completely different to the viewer, one from the other. So, But the show that I'm going to just kind of roll right into here is called The Chef Show. Now, for those of you who are familiar with foodie culture in general in the United States and or are kind of a fangirl, fanboy of it in the way I am, I'm sure you have more than likely seen the movie The Chef, which was written, directed, acted in, and produced by John Favreau. Now, some of you may not know much about Jayan Favreau outside of the MCU. However, I have been following this guy's career for quite a while. He made a fantastic movie, I think in the late 80s, early 90s, or maybe it was the early 2000s. It was called Swingers. I'd have to go look that up, and I didn't. Well, I did kind of, but I didn't look that particular thing up. In either case, that was sort of his debut in terms of, for me, anyway, as a actor or whatever. He apparently appeared in Rudy, but I don't really remember him in that movie. I hate to say. Um, he's gone on, of course, to do tons of other movies and swingers. Some of them his own. Some of them big properties for other companies, including having done Daredevil for DC and before he came to do the MCU. But John Favreau is a pretty fantastic and interesting guy. I watched his IFC show for a long time, Dinner for Five, which was an interesting concept for a film show. I have to admit I have a guilty pleasure in watching Inside the Actor Studio 
despite the fact that Plimpton is kind of a douchebag. I really do enjoy that show. And I like listening to any artist. It doesn't matter if it's a musical artist or a visual artist in terms of film or fine art. I really love listening to them talk about their craft. And I love listening to them talk about the struggles that they have with with their art in terms of economics or political or social or personal. I mean, I find all of that really interesting. I find life, the inner life or the personal lives, folks who are involved at that level to be really pretty fascinating. And Favreau's show, Dinner for Five, really sort of gets into that because he generally picks the guests around a particular theme. They've either all worked with each other or worked with each other in kind of round. In other words, one actor will have worked with another actor at the table who've both worked with a director or a producer or whatever. So they may not all have been in on the same properties necessarily, but they have all worked together in one capacity or another. And then they just discuss like how they got into film or how that this film or that film got made, what was going on during the time contextually. So it's a really good show and very different from inside the actor's studio in that it is a way more of a dialogue or a collaborative effort and storytelling than, say, yeah, Plimpton asking his same questions every interview and that. But I'm not going to knock inside the actor's studio either because I actually really like it. It's sometimes the only opportunity we get for some of these actors, directors, writers, ensembles to like really unpack and discuss themselves as artists and the way that they approach their art etc so I'm not going to knock it but in any case John Favreau as some of you may know he made this movie Chef and this movie in particular stuck out to me as a foodie I love it but I also really love John Favreau as I had said having watched him in, in Swingers and Made and a few other things I really enjoy Enjoyed it and having been a big fan of Dinner for Five when I saw that he had the show out and that it looked like it might be either like at first I saw it based on the picture that they have up on Netflix that it was maybe some kind of a series that they were doing about the same character which I thought was really odd and interesting because you'd think John Favreau has enough on his plate right now. He's pretty busy with the MCU. There's a lot going on. So I was like, eh. But I checked it out because I love him. And it was absolutely worth my time. Instead of being a continuation of the movie, which it totally is not, but it does directly sort of deal with themes in the movie and shows how work on that order, creative work in that way, can create bonds between people that really are kind of unexpected. The story of the chef show and how it got made or started originally has everything to do with the MCU in some respects because Roy Choi, who is the co-host with John Favreau of the chef show, owns a group of food trucks in LA and he was kind of the guy who spearheaded or started the food truck renaissance in Los Angeles and therefore the rest of the United States with his LA-based fleet of food trucks started with one but most people who have spent any time in L.A. at all know and have heard of Kogi, Kogi Food Trucks. And, and Roy was the guy who created Kogi. He has a full formal French traditional training 
chef. I mean, he literally is all those things. And he worked as a chef in various different restaurants of some name throughout Southern California. And then at some point became discontented with the nature of working in fine dining, I think. It's kind of the way he portrays it. And he decided to just do Kogi, get a truck and do this thing. And he did it. Um, and it was right at the like beginnings of like serious social network on Twitter. So it must have been, I guess, the early 2000s. And he used that to full effect in order to grow Kogi into something that is just ginormous and super known in L.A., well, in any case, while John Favreau was filming one part or all of the MCU things, I think it might have been an Iron Man or a Spider-Man. There's a, there is an episode that gets into this a little bit. So if you really want to know the particulars, you can watch the show. But while they were doing that, Gwyneth Paltrow is actually the one who suggested they have Kogi truck come to the location and they eat. And in that experience is kind of the beginnings of John Favreau and Roy Roy Toy's um, relationship, which grows. John decides after having done all these, you know, super special effects and CGI movies, the early MCU stuff, that he wanted to do the movie Chef because he wanted to do just a movie movie. For lack of a better term, a slice of life movie that was just about normal people in whatever circumstances and situations. So he went on to do this chef and he wrote the story. And to some extent, the story of Casper um, or Carl Casper, the chef who Favreau plays in The Chef, his trajectory is very similar to Roy's. And so when he got done writing the story, John approached Roy about being, you know, an executive producer, creative consultant, on chef and at first I guess Roy kind of balked at it didn't really want to do it he didn't really understand how it would help him in any way and then later said to John that he would do it but only if John would do exactly what he told him because lots of foodies and lots of chefs get very angry watching food movies that do not portray what work in a kitchen actually is like what it actually, what you actually do, how it actually works, or what the restaurant business is like. They just don't do a good job. And then the actual physical shoots of things like knife skills and how things get cooked, those things also are just not displayed very well in film. And Roy said it really pissed him off. So if he was going to do Chef with Fabro, he was going to have to do exactly what he told him. Which is interesting because as a result of this, John Favreau basically got a firsthand, like right over your shoulder, teaching from Roy throughout the making of the movie Chef. Because all of the scenes in which John makes anything, those are Roy's recipes. And they're most all of them not done with body doubles. That is, or somebody standing in for John Favreau, that is John Favreau doing that work after Roy taught him how to do it and do it properly. So... It kind of, and what you don't know, you know, when you're watching the show, it looks really great, but like you don't know that's all what's going on. You find that out watching Chef the Show. Really fantastic kind of story that these two people bonded over, you know, a meal at a Kogi truck and then decided to do a movie together. And now they have this really, really exceptional, in my opinion, TV show 
you know, Netflix show, streaming show. What the fuck do we even call that stuff anymore? I want to just take a minute to say about Roy Choi, because I had mentioned, of course, that he has full French training. He did culinary school and all that sort of stuff. He has admitted, which a lot of chefs would not admit, but he says that he had his life saved by Emeril Lagasse. Um, Roy got into some trouble when he was a youth in Los Angeles and started doing drugs and running with gang members and some other things. He ended up getting cleaned up and straightened up, but he watched Emeril Lagasse <laughs> and Emeril's show really kind of spurred him this desire to go to culinary school. So that's why he did it. Once he got himself kind of squared around and cleaned up and sorted out, he decided he was going to go be a chef and he went and was a chef and came back. But I think it's interesting to note when I say that he was kind of the spearhead of the whole food truck revolution in the United States, I mean that he really was. I think maybe the greatest food chronicler of our entire time and maybe ever is Anthony Bourdain. And Anthony Bourdain made a spotlight of Roy when he went to Los Angeles and he has written of Roy. And I'm going to just give you a quote. I just want to give this quote of Anthony's about Roy Choi. Roy Choi first changed the world when he elevated the food truck concept from a roach coach to a highly sought after ultra hot, but democratic rolling restaurant. I mean, Tony didn't ever mince words, as we all know. He was very clear-spoken about the things that he really dug and the things that he really didn't dig. And he had absolutely nothing but praise for Roy. And so I have a lot of respect for Roy as a result. I've seen some other shows with Roy in them, though he doesn't do as much of that as some of the other chefs that I do really respect and like in American cuisine that don't get near enough attention because they don't do Iron Chef and they're not, they don't suck Bobby Flay's dick. So this is the beginning of their show. And so this show really is an interesting in format because it has its elements of Dinner for Five where there is definitely discussion of, you know, artistry and Hollywood a little bit, particularly the episode where they are in Atlanta, Georgia, for filming, of, I think, Captain Marvel, or no, I don't know, one of them. And they end up at this, they find this restaurant in Georgia, which I'm, I didn't write down, and I don't think it's terribly important unless you're from Georgia or you're going, and I really would rather not tell you the whole story series but get you to watch this series because it is its first year and we all know how Netflix is so if you like food shows at all please watch this show I want to see another season of it I really do I get mad every time I run I go to Netflix to watch dinner for five and there's one fucking episode of it up because somehow there was a falling out between Netflix and IFC but I really would like you guys to like if you like food and are interested at all please I encourage you you will not be disappointed by this show at any rate there's a there's a kind of a, a dinner for five feel to it there's a little bit of the Hollywood stuff you get a little bit of that but mostly what you really get is a interesting chronicle of a two guys that are really kind of in tune with each other in terms of food and and lifestyle and how they talk about food and how one teaches the other the teaching portion of their relationship is definitely not over every show they cook something together or some things several things all of which john is still in the process of learning from roy and roy is like right up him and teaching him all kinds of things so you get a cooking element you get a discussion element you get some travel and adventure which is also really cool but they take some time out to like 
really shows some interesting ideas about the way that humans interact in this new day and age i think they talk a little bit about the twitter thing and about roy's truck and how that how that blew up they also talk about things like how internet culture internet media even like personal made stuff can influence has influence in and all areas of the country one of the really good episodes they do is one where they make all of the recipes from chef but they don't do it by themselves. They have the gentleman from Binging with Babish on and they do it with him. And it's interesting because they have watched Binging with Babish. They're like aware that he is a thing. It's not just, you know, this weird cloister of YouTube trolls who watch that show or the few of us foodies that have watched it my son is a far bigger binging with babish fan than i am and it's only because i never think of it when i should be thinking of watching something i you know tend to either rewatch something else or not but i should have gone and watched i should go watch binging with babish and maybe i will as a result of this nathan would love that we could probably talk about it forever he loves to watch that show and has said nothing but good things. But it's interesting that Roy and John Favreau both know who he is and like have seen his channel. They know where he's ranked the movie chef on his list of best culinary films. Like they give rib him about it a bit. Babish shows him the tattoo that he got of Carl Casper's knife from chef on his front arm, his front forearm. And it's really interesting, including them making a molten chocolate cake, which if you've seen the movie chef is kind of a joke. I mean, they don't make a mess of it. Let's put it this way. Babish does the recipe backwards, but Roy says some really, he makes a really cute comment about, Hey, it's, you know, car still goes, still runs in back in reverse. So like they made manage it and they make a beautiful molten chocolate cake which i have to say looked delicious and then they were like scarfing that's a really good episode that's just one highlight from the episode they you know they break it up pretty well between locations uh outside of los angeles and then they have, must have some kitchen i don't know who is if it's john Favreau's home kitchen or where that kitchen is but they use this kitchen that's always the same kitchen wheel they'll do a cooking segment and that's a really excellent episode there's also a very important episode i guess for me as a food tv watcher and consumer i have seen many 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 food shows documentary shows in which Jonathan Gold of the Los Angeles Times has played a really important role. He often is brought in to talk about restaurants that were whatever, nobody knew about them, and then he would go and discover them. He's known for this. He's known for going through Los Angeles's subcultures and finding restaurants that deserve accolades and attention and eating at them and then making big write-ups in the LA Times and basically making people's careers. And Roy is one of these people. As much as Roy is definitely uh, was the architect of his early success with Kogi through using Twitter, he it really didn't blow, blow, blow up until after Jonathan Gold ate at his Kogi truck in Venice and wrote up a big piece about it. And then suddenly Roy was not just... LA famous which is a thing that you can be but he was like famous famous um lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people read the, the Los Angeles Times life and leisure section and have read Jonathan Gold's reviews at nauseum for lots of reasons mostly because he had an exceptionally good palate and it was one of the most democratic food writers in the United States he literally 
and this was discussed in the episode that they did for him because he passed away last year, uh, almost a, a year ago now. It'll be it'll July 21st. It will be one year since Jonathan Gould passed away. And But Jonathan Gould would literally go to neighborhood restaurants and little places and the food was like just food and pe- but there were regulars and people eating there and, and people that enjoyed it. He didn't necessarily write a review. But when he went to these little unknown spots, these these places that people hadn't been some mom and pop place that was exceptional and exceptional for the representation of cuisine that it presented exceptional for the flavors exceptional for the value exceptional for all of those things he would write about them so that these little tiny places actually could stay because a lot of restaurant tourism, which a lot of people don't understand restaurant being restaurant tour. I mean, being a restaurant tour is it food can be really important and having good food is super important, but location is a huge key to being successful. Your business savvy is a huge key to being successful. And when you come from an immigrant population, baby being able to secure everything that makes a restaurant look professional, all those sorts of things become barriers because getting loans and the rest of it to actually start a business like that is really hard. Restaurants come and go. I mean, they're an exceptionally transient business and very hard to make go of it because there's just so much overhead right from the very beginning and it never goes away. Your food costs will be something that you work to keep down for the entirety of the time that you open have a business open. You will be fighting quality versus the bottom line all the time. So Jonathan Gould was sort of a champion for this. He was, you know, the Don Quixote who would ride into whatever neighborhood in Los Angeles, and there are lots, and would find the places, and he would make it possible for these people who are actually really exceptional at their craft of cooking, be able to blow up to the point, be LA famous to the point where they were able to keep their businesses, despite the fact that there's a huge glut. The competition is terrifying. The Food costs are expensive and then there's all the cultural barriers and the location barriers one has to deal with because you might be in a part of LA that's considered, you know, passe or dangerous or nobody really knows anything about. And this was something that Gold did and did very well. So I've seen him in like tons of food shows before. And one of the best episodes of this season of the chef show is one that they do. It is a memorial to Jonathan Gold. So it's, it's just a beautiful show. It has him as a focus. They talk about how each of the people that they had on the show related to or got to know Jonathan Gold. On the show, they have Evan Kleinman, who is from KCRW, um, food commentator, and a judge for LA's yearly pie competition, where bakers from all over the LA area get together and bake pies, and then they judge them. Um, and I've seen her on a couple different shows with Jonathan. And then there was Jazz Sing Senong, from Jitalada in LA and she is a, a Thai cook and she's a Thai immigrant and just the most beautiful <laughs> sweet and wonderful little Thai lady you're ever going to meet and they make a bunch of meals that were things that Jonathan loved to eat they talk about how Jonathan influenced all of their careers I think the most important one really is story because it's the most heart moving is for Jazz, she and her family were really struggling with their little Thai restaurant. And 
Jonathan Gould changed their entire life. And she gets very emotional about that. They were just barely hanging on by a thread. They were known of within the Thai community and considered to be the best Thai restaurant by the Thai population in Los Angeles. But that's by no means the entire population in Los Angeles. And Jonathan Gould tried a, a spotlight on her business and created a whole new world for her family and cemented Thai food in in Los Angeles in a way that it had not been before. And just, so it's a really great episode. It's very heartwarming for me. And it's, uh, it's wonderful to see them. And even in this episode, they all make, they all make John Favreau cook or, but I have to say this in Don's defense. He also just jumps right into things. Like he is really into food. It's not just like it's, you know, whatever, but he like, he asks and he improvises on things. There's some great interplay between him and Roy at different points in the show where John has his iPhone and he has every text message him and Roy have ever shared. And so they're full of recipes because I'm guessing John's the kind of guy who texts and says, I have guests coming on Friday. I'm thinking about this. What should I make with it? And Roy, being a good friend, comes back with a recipe, right? Or I ate this thing at your restaurant and I really liked it. How do I make that? And Roy sends him a text. And so... He's got all these. And so then there becomes comparative recipe because he'll talk about doing that. And then all of a sudden, you know, he'll be, John will be out with the cell phone going, but that's not how you told me to make it before. This is great. There's just some great moments in it. It's got a lot of humor. It has got a lot of good food technique. It has a lot, I think, going for it in terms of human interest and uh, documenting the Los Angeles food scene. And definitely the little bit of time that they're in Atlanta, there's a fantastic bit about in a restaurant in Atlanta that any of you of Southern folks that are listening to this, you should definitely check out or anybody that goes down to Atlanta. And again, you should watch the show because I don't want to wreck it all. But that's like one of the really great episodes. And then as I've discussed before, I think I talked about this when I reviewed Ugly Delicious in my original really kind of big thing. David Chang shows up in the show because him and Roy are friends. And, and that's pretty much where I first heard about Roy specifically was, or no, maybe it was Anthony Bourdain. Um, and Anthony, of course, led me to David Chang and David Chang led me to, you know, all kinds of things. But Roy is and David Chang are both Korean American. And they have success with Korean food and Japanese food. Because I believe David Chang also has a Japanese or he's familiar. I don't know. In either case, it's been a while since I've actually done a whole lot of thinking about David Chang in that regard. Like where he got started. But they're both uh, can identify as Korean American. And they both are very successful men in their particular realms. And it's so it's interesting to watch them cook together and it's interesting to watch them discuss Korean food and why it's important and interesting and then discuss something that seems to be the main thrust of David Chang's work in Ugly Delicious, which is that what people might want now, the next move in culinary fashion, as it were, is to present home food. So the away from the fine dining, although they want that, they want the atmosphere maybe of fine dining, 
but that comfort foods and home foods and that sort of thing may indeed end up being far more the next move on the culinary horizon. At least it's something that he's interested in. He's been working on some particular recipes, Korean recipes that he learned from his mother to like bring them up a notch for a fancy restaurant or make them more visually compatible with Western eyes and or change textures and the rest of it also to more reasonably please an American audience because Americans, you know, are, are we're not the only arbiters of what's good to eat, but we are kind of spoiled brats in terms of certain things. And so there's stuff that they eat in Korean cuisine that Americans would never touch. And so he's trying to work on ways to like, update that and make it whatever and but he says he thinks that that's a real big thing for a lot of folks is they want home food they want comfort food that again we're coming back to that heart of the matter when it comes to food and that is that it not just function as a way to fill your belly and not just function as a form of art but function as a piece of community and that those things that is super important now so it's an interesting episode from that standpoint. It's good to see him and Roy discuss all those sorts of things in terms of how that works. I find it fascinating, personally. There's several others, and I could mention a flurry of both culinary world celebrities that are in this episode and real celebrities that are in this episode. No, Chris Evans does not make it onto any of the episodes of The Chef Show. I don't know that they would... That they would. <laughs> That he would. But there is some MCU faces that you will see in one of the episodes. And or two actually come to think of it. And so there's some stuff. But it's a really, really, really good show. And I I just can't say enough about it. I would really suggest for anybody who likes food shows. And anybody who appreciates John Favreau's work. That you watch it. Keep your mind open. You know what I mean? It's it's, But it is a really good show. I really found it super enjoyable. So the next show after this one that I will be reviewing in a separate episode all by itself, I'm just going to give it a quick blurb. And that one is the street food show on Netflix. And if I remember correctly, I believe it is also being produced by David Gelb. It is really interesting. It goes to Asia specifically Southeast Asia, where right now it seems like every fucking Food Network chef that has anything to do with anything is ripping the shit out off of Korean food and Vietnamese food and Filipino food. Like, it's just, and Thai food, it's just a thing right now. I, I, I Every time I see that uh, Korean hot pepper paste come out of anywhere, I just want to punch somebody. And it's not that I don't think that we should be sharing our food ways and like utilizing that stuff, but it's just like, I love that this documentary goes to street food in these countries, these developing countries, or street food was literally a lifeline for workers in these developing countries that worked seven days a week and 12 hours a day. And the only place that they could get a meal while they were at work was at the you know, stall down the street from where they were putting up a building or where they were laying street tiles or doing whatever it was they were doing. So we're talking about, you know, Vietnam, South Korea, Thailand. I think there's one in Indonesia that they do, Jakarta or somewhere in that vicinity. 
Um, and the Philippines, like, this is like a thing where these people are like, you know, that street food is the food of the common people. But it gets into an interesting dialogue about how gentrification and coming along as a developing nation now and the need for clean streets and sanitation and all those sorts of things that we all take for granted is starting to put a squeeze. Oh, in Japan. And there's a really fantastic guy from Japan. I think he was my favorite. But that this move towards uh, sort of a sterile, bland urban landscape is threatening not just street food, but, and it is, but also threatening in an odd way some very old and integral food traditions in these countries because sometimes street food is the only place that you can get these dishes outside of their specific region that they come from and because of things like over farming and transportation and climate stress and you name it, some of these foods without these people, these families maybe that have been running these food trucks in these areas, you know, it, it, it runs a risk of losing these foodways entirely. So I would really suggest if you haven't before I get that episode cut, um, watch that show and you have run out of food shows to watch. I would most definitely suggest watching that show. I think um, you'll get a lot out of it. I really loved it. So you should see it. I will get more in depth with it next time um, because there's a lot to talk about in these shows. They're all very good. So that's what I have to say. I do want to say I'm going to be putting together, for those of you who care, a, for myself, for no one else, next week I will be doing a special episode there won't probably won't be any coffee at the beginning and there's likely to not be too much for crack pottery at the end. But I, but in solidarity with Eric Rippert, um, French chef, I'm going to celebrate next week. June 25th is Anthony Bourdain day. And I am thinking I will probably record an episode about Anthony and his influence on the way we all look at food and for sure the way that I look at food and his influence also and what the world has lost in not having his voice anymore. So I'm going to have that ready for hopefully next week. Um, I thought about doing that today, but I don't, I want it on the day. I'm, I feel a little like, you know, I should do it on the day should drop it on the 25th so that when we're any of us and all of us who are feeling uh, a little down in the mouth because he's gone we can commiserate together anyway that is it i don't have a lot for this week in terms of like a show because i just wanted to do this review and hot and dirty and get it out i'm hoping that you guys um, enjoyed it and are looking forward to the next like full episode. Still not sure what that is. I really, really do want to get together with some people that I know who read fantasy and sci- sci-fi and do kind of a panel discussion of our like top five or top 10 books. And maybe I will have to separate it out into like, these are the fan, we'll do a fantasy show and then we'll do a sci-fi show. And at the sci-fi show, I'm just going to moderate because <laughs> I don't really like science fiction. Which I suppose we could get into a little bit, but I'm just not a sci-fi fan too. Books, no. Shows, I love. Because you cannot carry a show on 
technical diagrams, schematics, and discussions of how, you know, plasma pulse engines work. Um, but you can fucking do that in a book, apparently, and people will read it. Not me. A TV show or a movie, you actually have to present characters with, you know, development and a plot. And I don't always feel like science fiction gives me a whole lot other than a bunch of super nerdy bullshit that I'm just not into. That kind of nerdy bullshit. I have my own nerdy bullshit. I don't have time for that. So maybe we'll do that and then we'll do a fantasy one and, and then it might be a little more. I have a lot more to say. A lot more to say about that. But I think that will probably be the next episode after this one. One of those two. I just got to get my people all in all my ducks in a row. I had wanted to do a Chicago Cubs show. But in the meantime, while you're waiting to hear any more of my weirdness, you should definitely check out Handmaids and Harlots. Also on Anchor. You can just Google it. It should come up. But there will be a link in the show notes for this week. And I guess I'll just move then to Cracked Pottery. Cracked Pottery. So there's a lot. I mean, part of the reason I've not wanted to do this episode for a while is I don't even know where to start when it comes to this fucking country. I, or the world, for that matter. It's just so... It's just so fucked. So I caught the tail end of something last night on Twitter, which I thought was unfortunate and interesting but I want to make a remark or two about this. So last night I log into Twitter and Twitter says to me that John Cusack is trending. And I'm thinking, oh, well, I follow Cusack, but I don't, I, you know, sometimes I don't get on Twitter for a day or two. I'm not like, you know, that person who's like everywhere my cell phone goes, I'm on Twitter the whole fucking time. I don't do that. I have a couple Twitter accounts that I have to run for different podcasts and now one for a stream that I'm going to be doing. And then I have my own so, like, I don't really, you know what I mean? I just flop around and flop around for the people that I work for when I'm doing social media updates for them. So, I don't really spend a lot of time, like, going through all the Twitter stuff and, like, knowing all the things. I'm not that person and I can't stand it when my phone makes noises. So, I have it on mute, right? Pretty much all the time. So, I go to look this up. Like, what the fuck John Cusack is trending? So, let's go check and see what John Cusack is trending for. John Cusack is apparently trending because he reblogged a fascist anti-Jew meme and it didn't really matter what the context of what he said in his remarks apparently it was just the image was enough to get everyone in the Twitter versus tail bent now that was bad he it wasn't the most flattering meme and somebody pointed out that it's one that's been making its way around alt-right internet verse for a while you know, it showed a, a big arm with a bunch of people squished under its hand, and on the arm was a Star of David. So, and then it made a very unfortunate bunch of, uh, unfortunate remark about, you know, money. And, but the point that was interesting to me, which I kind of feel bad that John decided to take the bitch route on this. Okay, so like, was it anti-Semitic? The meme certainly was. I, I'm not going to say that it wasn't anti-Semitic from the standpoint that it does use the Star of David. I will say, however, that it's the Star of David does not belong to Zionists. They use it as cover, though. And the reason this is important is that the alt-right uses the cross as the same sort of cover. 
So you can't, you cannot make a comment, a negative critique, or draw any kind of parallels between poisonous Zionism and the Jewish faith, or you can't separate the two, is what I want to say. Because the use of the Zionist, the uh, stealing everything they can of Palestine version of the Israeli government, you can't distinguish that when they lock up these images like this in the idea that it somehow hobnails the Jewish faith. These terrible people in Israel who are and have been abusing the Palestinians now for close to 70 years, they are using the Star of David to protect themselves in the same way that the alt-right uses the cross to protect themselves. In the same way that white nationalists use the cross for cover for their misogyny, their homophobia, their racism, their otherism, all of that is they use the cross. So you can't say or use images that they use as sort of their sword and shield to delineate them from anyone else because the minute you do, then everybody else who's a Christian and doesn't hold what those beliefs gets tarred in it too. And I, I'm, it's unfortunate that John didn't actually understand that because that really is at the base of this is that Zionism in its, in its nasty tentacular way has crept into everybody's consciousness as being synonymous with the Jewish faith, which it is not. It is not. There are rabbis aplenty in the capitalist arm of the Judaic faith because there are different sects of Judaism, folks. There's the Orthodox, the ultra-Orthodox, Hasidic, there's the, you know, secular Jews or secular-like Jews. I mean, there's lots of sects of Judaism, just like there's lots of sects of Islam, and we have a thousand. I mean, and I can start a new one of Christianity today if I wanted to. There's just so much. So, <clears throat> but there are, there are rabbis aplenty who denounce Zionism is, as a sin, in fact, against the Jewish faith. So, it's kind of unfortunate that John got smacked with that. But what was worse was he bitched out at the end and said that it was a bot. Maybe Russian hackers. I mean, he came with a fucking... What? Just own that it's unfortunate that you can't use... You can't use the flag of Israel to denote the political policies of its ruling class and party. That if you do, then you're suddenly anti-Jewish. That you're suddenly anti-Semitic. I personally, as a practicing pagan, have no dog in this race. I don't care. I personally view the Jewish faith as a matter of the Jews and their faith. The same way I do Islam, Buddhism, Shintoism, Christianity, Lutheranism, or any number of other religions that exist outside of the bubble that white Anglo-Saxons seem to think exists. There is, you know, a whole panoply of other religions throughout the world, and I am not bothered that most of them don't have the same one as me. 
It doesn't threaten my faith. It doesn't threaten my practice. It doesn't threaten me personally that they don't. The only things that threaten me personally are the evangelicals of any of those faiths who believe that they have a right to legislate that my world look like their their dream world and that I have to practice their faith or I have to hide my faith behind something. Whatever that is. We keep it in private. It's like like Elizabeth the first of England stating that People could be Protestant in public and Catholic in private. It's fucking ridiculous. So I don't care. Just keep your religion to yourself. It's your religion. It's not mine in any case. So John got hammered for this and then he bitched out and said that it was, you know, whatever. Instead of saying it's unfortunate that Zionists are allowed to crouch behind the religious symbols and symbolism of the Hebrew faith, while they commit racism and war crimes, while they enact a final solution, and I'm going to fucking use the words, final solution in the West Bank. I think it's unfortunate, and I think that I'd like to see, have seen more Jewish people, like, stand up and say, you know, the picture was really stupid, and it's, and, and definitely came from an alt-right perspective. John, we know, is not an alt-righter, and John is not an alt-right person, and I don't believe for a minute that he is anti-Semitic, despite being Catholic and despite being from Chicago, just because we're Midwestern and we're Catholic doesn't make us Jew haters. That's not real. In any case, he, despite all those things, I don't believe that for a minute that he is anti-Semitic. But I can see how that reads, and I can understand then when there's a lame excuse for the bot and the rest of it. But I think it's really unfortunate that more people didn't come to his defense and say, listen, that all that stuff's objectionable. But if you'd read the tweets beside the picture, you'd get the understanding because they were completely contextual. Everything he said in the tweet, aside from the pictures and, and, and the repeated tweeting of that picture with more and more comments attached was totally about the illegitimacy of the Israeli government and the treatment of Palestinian people. And it was not about anti-Jew. It was not about anti-Semitic message. It was about an anti-Zionist message. There is a difference. And I don't, I, I know people don't like to parse that. And I know it's really politically unpopular right now to do that, but I'm going to parse it. There's a difference between being a practicing Jew in any form of practicing Judaism you'd like to pick and being allowed to do that, not being marginalized because you do it and not being your physical body being threatened and your homes being wrecked and you being sent off to concentration camps that is definitely anti-semitic not hiring you because you're a practicing jew not marrying you because you're a practicing jew refusing you service anywhere because you're a practicing jew all of those things are anti-semitic but telling anybody that their government is full of terrible war criminals bent clearly on the eradication of the ethnic group of a whole nother people simply for access and control of resources is absolutely fascist and it absolutely needs to be called out and I do not fucking apologize for being anti-Zionist. I won't. And I don't think anybody else should either. They've been playing, and this is the worst part, which makes me the most angry, is that they use the, they use the death 
and deaths of millions of people during the Holocaust as a sword and shield to then commit the exact same crimes against the Palestinians. If anybody is trivializing the Holocaust, it is the Israeli government and any Zionist authorities in that government or their agents operating in this country. They are. They are anti-Semitic. And they are making light of that history and that truth. They are trivializing all of what happened during World War II to the Jewish populations of Europe. Absolutely trivializing it. And I know that's a super fucking hot take. I know that is a super crack pottery thing, but I don't care. I have never supported Israeli expansion into the West Bank. I have never. And for all of my life, and that's the sad part, for all of my life, I was born in 1968. For all of my life, I have prayed for peace between the Israelis and the native Palestinian population in Israel and the West Bank and the Gaza Strip all my life. And it's unfortunate that more people have to feel ashamed for praying for that peace when it doesn't include complete obliteration of Palestinian people. And if you're ever interested as to why I feel that way, go look up the establishment of Israel as a country. Look at all the influences that were involved in that. Read. Read your history. Get to know. Because it's very revealing. And that's, I guess, the rest of my, that's the end of my crack pottery. Because I just, woof, that whole business was just, Cusack doesn't really give a fuck what anybody thinks about what he says, but he's never, ever, never, ever come out as anti-Zionist. And he is a very left, very left politically. He's probably as far left as I am and maybe more. And I've never heard anything remotely anti-Semitic out of him. That business with Twitter yesterday was not good. It, the optics are terrible. And you never want to reblog anything from the alt-right unless you thrash it com- fucking completely. But, you know, and you do it as an example of like stupid people and shit that they do on the internet. It was dumb. It was dumb on his part. It was really unfortunate. It was really dumb of John to like fall into that stereotypical view, that snatch of of artwork because it was definitely anti-Semitic and meant to be and you could tell. It wasn't, you know, I could tell looking at it. But I also know that, you know, it's time that we call out these people from hiding behind their sword and shield of their emblems of faith. And I don't care if it is Allah's name written, if it is the Om, if it is of Hinduism. We can get into India, but I'm not going to right now, except to say that they have a bloody dictator there too. All that sort of stuff is like, we need to stop letting them use their emblem of faith as their sword and shield to protect them from real, reasonable, and righteous criticisms of their political choices. Because honestly, Christianity doesn't need to be about politics. It really doesn't. And and I'm hoping that in the, sometime before the end of the world, which I just read something that said, it, like, maybe in 2050 it's all over anyway, folks. But... It's sometime before the end of the world. It would be really nice to think that people could realize that religion is internal, spiritual, and personal, and that politics based on religiosity is inhuman. 
because this country in particular is headed down a very dark path if this this religiosity and the necessity to legislate from the pulpit continues we're in for it i'm really hoping that instead we get this wonderful groundswell that decides to do you know reformation light where we liberate the billions of dollars worth of tax-free property and goods from the churches in this country and make them pay taxes if we're actually going to talk about reparations for slavery, slave trade, I think we really need to look at the church, all of them, and their tax-exempt status. I really think that's a thing. So we go there. Because then they wouldn't have enough money to like legislate from the pulpit. They'd actually have to pay to keep the lights on. And I'd love to see what happens with these televangelists who somehow have convinced a great number of the people that we all know and love into sending them obscene amounts of money pathetic it's disgusting joel Osteen makes me want to throw up i hate it when i see people reblog his quote-unquote motivational quotes the guy is a scam artist he just looks better than jim baker but he isn't any different what's wrong with you fucking people well the crow and the raven were sitting on the vines Watching as the vultures circled in the darkened sky And the crow said, Mr. Raven, it's obvious to me That there's trouble for as far as I